You know, I'm not 100% sure if we've run into this situation yet. My memory's not that good. But this is the first time I recall when over half of my notes on the episode are about the behind-the-scenes stuff rather than about the episode proper. I'm going to go ahead and admit something that's probably going to make me a little uh, unpopular. I don't care for this episode all that much. Oh, it's not bad. It's just, this is pretty average for TNG. I mean, you have to have some averages, right? This wouldn't be on the skip list, but this definitely wouldn't be part of the VCR collection, if you follow me. This is, however, another series of firsts. This is the first time we see Starfleet Academy, which will be re recurring many times in basically every show after this point. It's the first time we see Boothby, who, believe it or not, only actually showed up in three episodes total, despite being such a memorable character. Um, in fact, uh, this also directly follows through on several continuity points. Uh, obviously, Picard reference Encounter with Farpoint, uh, and Boothby himself was mentioned in Final Mission, as well as in the game. We also hear a little bit about Picard's own past uh, in vagueness. The writers went out of the way to never actually decide what actually happened with Picard because they said it didn't matter, and I suppose that's fair, but it would have been interesting to know. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah! This is when we first see Tom Paris, too. <sighs> let's talk about the episode first, because I have the least to say about it. So, a bunch of college kids are going to do a band maneuver in order to make a big splash on their final day, on their senior year. Or rather, his senior year, Locarno's senior year. Now, on the one hand, that's stupid. But on the other hand, I remember college. This is probably one of the very few times when a character does something that is very stupid, and it actually makes perfect sense. I just wanted to comment on that, because I've had some people tear that specific point apart, like, oh my god, it's a banned maneuver, and banned for a reason. What did they think would happen? They'd be showered with praise once they successfully did it? No, people would be like, hey, that's pretty cool. And then the actual staff would come down on them like a ton of bricks. But again, my counter-argument to that was always, you remember being in college, right? <laughs> so, I do like... There's a couple of nice little details in this episode. I, wanna, I only want to brush on a couple of them. Uh, Boothby in his entirety is actually pretty awesome. I like the way Crusher copes with all of this by basically handling it very professionally and trying to focus on you know, the medical side of things. You know, Basically shoveling her professional crisis mode side, like I was talking about last episode, to the front so she doesn't have to think about things. It's also probably interesting, because the beginning of the episode makes it sound like Crusher might actually be injured. That is to say, Wesley might actually be injured. He's not, of course. Then we know that. But it's interesting, because the episode kind of frames that in such a light. Uh, and then, of course, we have a nice little touch, and they kept this character this on the Blu-ray as well. The flag in the background at Starfleet Academy is at half-mast. Very nice touch. So, the Admiral has a nice little bit where she mentions that commencement should go as planned, and her stated reasoning for that is to remind people that life goes on even after someone dies. That sounds a little callous, but as weird as this may sound, I'm completely with her on that. Especially in a military organization. <clears throat> but even if this wasn't a military organization, it is worth noting that that is an attitude that needs to be had. Not that the death doesn't matter. Quite the contrary, they, they put quite a few effort and resources into this matter. More so, I've heard some people say they go excessively into this, to which my response is always, someone died! But to remind people that they do need to cope. That death is a thing that we can't escape. And ergo, 
it is something we have to learn how to, to comprehend, how to deal with, and how to move on from. It's not a pleasant lesson, but it is a very realistic one. So then we got, you know, he's got the arm stretcher, and just a nice little, a lot of little details in this episode which are good. It's funny because this was an episode directed by Paul Lynch. Now you might be thinking, who the heck is Paul Lynch, Lore? Well, he's only done like I think seven episodes. I don't have the list in front of me of TNG and DS9 ever. He's not a prolific director, at least among Star Trek. And none of them are really noteworthy or memorable. In fact, of them, one of the only ones he has commented on in a positive light is this one, because for him it was something he could work better with, you know, more of a character piece, a talkie piece, as, as it's sometimes called. Given that Lynch himself actually had worked on the new Twilight Zone quite a bit, you can kind of see why he would have that sort of opinion. And it, he does do a decent job of it, so I'll give him that credence. Anyway, so, <laughs> there's this... T the episode is does another one of those things where it gives away the mystery a little too early. In my opinion, unlike Clues, it doesn't work quite as well. In Clues, the mystery was not who did it. The mystery was why. Here, again, the mystery is not, you know, are they covering up anything? It's more, yeah, no, we totally know that something went wrong. In fact, we, we, don't even, we the audience, don't even learn the actual truth of what he was doing until the very last, uh, just before the very last commercial break, before the end. Which kind of helps to emphasize to me how little that matters. Because this isn't a mystery at all. It's a character piece. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So instead, he's like, I don't want to talk to Picard. I don't want to talk to Crusher. Oh, it's my captain. I want to talk to him immediately. There's a lot of emotions that can be swirled up in that kind of moment. Like, imagine being a parent for a second. And imagine you're very close to your kid. Now, fast forward and imagine your kid barely wants anything to do with you. They want to hang out with their friends instead. I'm sure some of you don't have to imagine that. Yeah. The, <laughs> wow, that hit me harder than I thought it would. But it is interesting because then, of course, the music brings up the tense music and it gets across the point that something is up, that this is a horrible thing and blah, blah, blah. And Wesley is complicit in it. I'm actually very curious. How many of you remember your first emotional reaction to the blatant uh, expo exposition of the idea that Crusher, Wesley, excuse me, Wesley Crusher, is involved in something underhanded. I ask that because it was something that was being done very deliberately, because they wanted to show how Wesley was not this perfect, flawed person who could make mistakes. Although I'm getting a little bit too much into the behind-the-scenes stuff, and I said I'd save that for later. Whatever. The, I mentioned the harshness of the trial here, and I actually like that. I, as I've already I already mentioned, because someone died. In fact, one of the things I want to give this episode credits on is a nameless mook. I say nameless. We do actually know his name. But, you know, a, effectively a red shirt dies in this episode. In fact, he dies before the episode even really starts. And yet, despite everything, the entire episode revolves around the events of that one death of that one kid. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. And I hate to bang on this point, but it reminds me of Civil Defense over on DS9, which to date, I'm going to just keep using that as the example of how not to do a redshirt death. Because a redshirt dies in Civil Defense. It, I, I don't know if you remember that. I actually pulled up the scene just to rewatch it, just to remind myself, because I was going to specifically say Ensign Nobody or Lieutenant Nobody, but the person was facing you know, this way, so you can actually tell 
what rank insignia they had. So it's just a red shirt. They just die. Nobody cares. Now, I'm not saying the episode has to die every time someone... Or stop every time someone dies. I'm just saying that you should use death more carefully and precisely as an iterative tool, like they do here. Moving on. I like how Lucarno basically deflects their line of reasoning. Probably the only thing that bothers me about this whole thing is their investigation into the matter is kind of threadbare. Basically, it boils down to, we have factual proof that you're lying, but all of you continue to stand by your lie, and we have nothing else to draw from. Because we have no other information, we are just going to assume something happened, and we're going to you know, censure you for it. We're going to give you some kind of penalty and punishment for it and move on. That makes a degree of sense to me, but I do have to admit I find it somewhat interesting that no one was even remotely nearby to do or see anything within Seoul. Like, one random probe that happened to be within range of them is the only thing that happened to catch this. Really? Yeah, I, I know space is big, but this is Star Trek, and they can scan a very far distance with incredibly high precision. You're telling me no scanners were watching them. I mean, they were in beaming radius of a, of, a, of a safe zone, basically, right? And beaming radius isn't that far, so someone had to be keeping eyes on them, right? I hate to bang on this point as well, but it does feel like one of the weakest points of the episode. The, the nature of how they were capable to keep it hidden. Now, that's part of the narrative construction. I wish Huthor was watching this, because Huthor would say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, the specific construction of the matter doesn't matter. This is all about Wesley and him and him, the versus thing, which is part of his character. To which I say, you're right, but it still doesn't make sense, which it's just what bothers me. It, it, in short, it feels like more effort was put on the character point than the, the logic of it. Because the whole point is that Wesley has to choose. He has to personally come up and say, I did this. He can't be caught in this. He has to admit it. He has to make that action. That's the point. And I get that. It's probably worth noting that they could have still done that. It's just they would have had to drag it out to the point where basically, like like it, what I would have done, because I like to critique when criticizing, what I would have done is I would have made it so that, okay, obviously this is the information we have so far, and this is what we've got so far, and blah, 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 blah. As it happens, the USS Whatchafig, or Station Blobbity Blue, happened to be doing detailed scans of the area at the time. We weren't sure of this at, at, when we initially started this, but now we have this information. We're going to be reaching out to that ship and pulling those log files and pouring over them to see what happened. And then it's like, aha, they're going to actually look into this. And then, you know, that's when Wesley's like, I'm just going to step forward. I will admit, though, that, doesn't, that still doesn't quite work for the narrative point, because then Wesley is going to step forward and admit their cut, before they are caught, which doesn't work quite as well. So, in short, I'd have to reconstruct most of the efforts of the episode to make this really work, which is probably why they didn't bother. Now, you might wonder why I'm banging on about this point so much. It's because I don't have much of anything else to say about the episode. The biggest problem for me is the episode lays it on a little too thick. First, uh, Commander Albert comes in, and he says, It's okay. I'm sorry my son failed you. He was such a terrible person. Guild, 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 guild. And then, you know, his mother comes in, and it just believes him 100%. Of course you didn't do it, of course. I mean, you're not lying. 
I'm not going to let them destroy your career over something you didn't do. And it just, it lays it on a little thick. Because in my opinion, the only conversation he needed to have was the one with Picard. What I find most interesting about the conversation with Picard is, first of all, it's the best scene in the film, or in the episode, by far. As I've said before, weirdly enough, uh, Will Wheaton and Patrick Stewart actually have pretty good chemistry together. And just about any time you get those two actors, um, this happened in Final Mission, and this happened in Samaritan Snare as well. Just having the two actors act off each other tends to work pretty well. It's a shame we've only really got the three examples of it across the franchise. Anyways, so there's, you know, Picard, Wesley kind of stonewalls, and Picard approaches him as Picard, as his father figure and as his friend. But then Wesley stonewalls. So then Picard shifts gears immediately, and now Picard is Captain Picard of the Enterprise, speaking to a cadet. And his tone and his body language utterly shift. It's actually a fascinating thing, because then, by the end of the scene, Wesley is then willing to reach out to Picard as a person, as reaching out to his father figure, but by that point, Picard's had enough of this, and shuts him down immediately, dismissed. It's interesting, because I've heard some people say Picard was being too harsh in that scene. I don't agree. Ignoring the fact that, and I hate to keep pointing this out, someone died as a consequence of this snafu, it is also worth noting that Wesley is lying. Picard knows he's lying, and Wesley will not admit it. In fact, he tries to, what I like to call, weasel his way out of the situation. I told the truth. No, you told a lie of omission. I like to call that deception, by the way. I could say, hey, I'm Elvis. That's a lie. But I could say something more like, of course, now I can't think of anything. Deception is when you try to make someone else think something that is not true without telling a, with or without telling a lie, basically. But the idea is without telling a lie, by telling the truth, right? that kind of a thing, right? Um, and I guess this episode gives me an example, so I'll just use this as an example. I told the truth, and then I stopped. And they can determine their own opinions based on that, their own conjecture based on that. That's deception. And Picard is just livid about that, which I find interesting because... Well, this is this is a weird thing. Obviously, the first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth, real historical truth, or personal truth. You know, it's a good speech. Why truth, of all things? I know that sounds strange, but if you ask me what I believe the core tenets of Star Trek or the Federation are, I don't think truth would be in that list. In fact, I've actually mentioned this several times recently. It's about being united despite differences, or indeed because of differences, IDIC, right? Instead, he's about truth. I started thinking about that, and I was very weirded out by that. And then I slowly realized that that wasn't the point. Because the point is not about the morality. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that the focus isn't really put all that much on whether or not this is right or wrong. Now, I think that is correct and good that they're doing that. Because it is wrong. There's no debate there. There's no episode there. There's no drama there. There's no tension. What Wesley did was wrong. Bam, the end. It's far more about choosing a side. In fact, if I was to use another word instead of the first duty to truth, I would use the word the first duty to loyalty. This episode 
at its core is all about loyalty. And Wesley is caught in the middle of this, torn between his loyalty to his friends and his commanding officer, and his loyalty to Picard and his other commanding officer, but also torn between... So, so he's torn between Locarno and Picard, and he's also torn between sticking with the team or his own ideology of truth. Morality doesn't quite come into it, as weird as that may sound. And Wesley, in many ways, comes across as a kid who feels that both options are incorrect. That no matter what he does, he is doing something wrong. Because he believes very strongly in loyalty. It's something that's been burned into him from his time on the Enterprise, as well as on here on Starfleet Academy. Ironic, considering how Will Wheaton was treated behind the camera, but that's neither here nor there. I'm kidding. Will Wheaton, by all accounts, was actually really embraced by the cast, just not by the producers, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And so he has to decide which of his loyalties he adheres to. And it's interesting to note, earlier in the episode, you know, Picard mentions the incident to Boothby. And Boothby insists, you made a mistake. There isn't a man among us who hasn't been young enough to make a mistake. And, of course, you knew what you had to do. All I had to do was get you to listen to yourself. This is exactly what happens at the terminus of this episode, where Picard doesn't actually jump up and say, Admiral, I've got additional information. In fact, I get the very strong impression Picard was actually going to let it slide. He would be absolutely livid at the consequence, and he would probably just chop off Wesley as a consequence of that and never interact with them or be friends with them or anything else again, right? But I think he was going to let it slide, not because he was worried about that potential that I just mentioned, but because he believed that Wesley was going to adhere to his ideology, that he was loyal to the truth more than he was loyal to his friends. And, of course, that is what happens. Wesley steps forward and confesses. This brings me to Locarno. I haven't talked about him much. O'Neill is awesome. I actually really like uh, his acting. I've mentioned this many times over in Voyager. He, Tom Paris is one of my favorite characters on Voyager, possibly my absolute favorite character on Voyager, and with good reason. But I want to talk about something here because I would very much love to know your thoughts on Locarno. Because over the years, I've heard some people say that he's a horrible person, that he was just doing this for himself, that all he cared about was his own glitz and glamour and being the flashy captain, because he's obviously on the command track. And then I've heard some people say basically the exact opposite of that. And then I've heard some people say that he's just a scared kid and blah, blah, yeah, all the in-between. I'm curious of your thoughts. The only things I want to point out personally, at one point he is accused of only doing this for himself, and he f slams back hard that he's doing this for the team, that he's doing this for, you know, the group, not for himself. And at the end, it is revealed that he does come forward and say, no, this is on me as their commanding officer, it should be on me, blah, 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 and torpedoes his career and is kicked out of Starfleet as a consequence so that their, so that their sentence is lessened. So he did actually stand up for the team in the end. Just food for thought. If I might give my own opinion, now that you've had a chance to pause the video and give me your opinion, I think Locarno is a great example of a good person being twisted towards a wrong end because of ambition. I've talked many times about how Starfleet personnel tend to be very ambitious. This has been a recurring trend. Uh, I've talked about it with Harry Kim. Uh, I've talked about it with O'Brien and uh, Keiko. You know, I've, it's, a, it's a very common thing. And I champion that idea. I love that idea. 
But what we're seeing here is that that ambition can lead you to do something wrong, something incorrect. You could argue that he simply made a mistake during the death of his comrade. But there was no denying that his attempt to then cover it up because of ambition, or because he wanted to keep the team together, taking, take your pick on that, is what led him down an incorrect path. I just like that take on it. So let's talk about the behind the scenes. Ugh. So, um, God, where do I start? <sighs> Originally, Michael Pillar really wanted to push this episode. And I actually have a quote here. Because Rick Berman was very against doing this episode. And I quote, this is Pillar speaking about Berman. He's right, of course. No one's going to argue he's not. But I looked at him and said, look, to me we have an opportunity to do some... I'm sorry, I should rewind a second. Um, when we pitched it to Rick, Rick Berman, he said, it's not Star Trek. Star Trek's about going off to space and exploring new planets. It's not about going back to Earth. So I already disagree with that. He's right, of course. This is Pillar. And no one's going to argue he's not, but I looked at him and I said, look, to me we have a special opportunity to do something special. We have the chance to explore an issue that is extra, mean, extra meaningful to a lot of young people. If you're involved with drugs or teenage misbehavior or crime and you may know it's the wrong thing and you have the choice of being loyal to your friends or doing what's honest, that's a great issue for us to explore. And I said to Rick, it gives us a chance to go to Starfleet Academy for the first time, and I got to tell you, with a show that desperately seeks new ideas, I don't think we can afford to pass on this one. And he said, sold, as long as you only have three sets, which is funny because they did. Although they did have one outdoors area. Unless you count that? Hang on. No, I guess they really did only have three sets. Holy crap. Now, <clears throat> this episode was written by two people, Ronald D. Moore and Naren Shanker. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, Shanker and Moore also had a very interesting lead-up to this. Now, I want you to pay attention to this, too. So, they both disagreed violently on how this should go. And this is a quote from Shankar here. Ron, uh, we had a long argument about whether or not it was the right thing to do, and Ron felt we were assassinating Wesley's character. No one would forgive him for turning in his friends. We went through a lot of elaboration on what was really important to the message we wanted to give our audience. Not a, not a question of loading the dice. We want to make the other side as strong as we can. Ultimately, we made the decision to dramatically resolve the conflict with the character. Ron reluctantly agreed to go forward with this ending in mind, that truth is what's the most important thing, which is what I want my kids to believe. This is, again, Shanker. Ron hasn't had any kids yet, so he doesn't know that yet. But what I found most interesting is he got into the script, and the issue of protecting the friendship was the hardest for him to get right. And I'm, I'm going to actually skip forward. She keeps talking for a while there. I think Shanker is a she. I don't actually know. But the point is, this is actually one of those really rare examples where a writing duo works out really well. Robert, Ronald D. Moore was basically writing the, the Locarno scenes, and, and it shows. He's really good at that kind of character interaction. Shankar was writing the other scenes, including the great Wesley and Picard scene. And the point is, the two writers in real life disagreed on which you should be more loyal to, your friends, your team, or your ideology, the truth. And so they were able to try and showcase both sides there as best as they could, now, whether that narrative is constructed properly on showing both sides appropriately, that's up to you. I think they kind of failed, mostly because of the whole death thing. Which brings me to another interesting point. Originally, originally this was a completely different episode. Well, 
that's not true. Originally, this was a very slightly different episode, which completely changed the tone. The original script and several drafts of the script after that had Wesley covering for his teammates, but Wesley was not actually part of doing anything wrong. He was complicit because he was covering, but Wesley didn't actually do anything. That changes the tone substantially. Rather than attempting to cover for himself and also his team, he was just covering for his team. Okay? I want you to keep that in mind. And then they changed that and decided to make it in another direction. Now, I bring that up. Whoops. I bring that up because I screwed up with my mouse. I've got a lot of notes on this one, like I said. It's like two pages on this episode here. Rick Berman says, In the early stages, they wanted Wesley's crime to be a little more heinous, the cover-up more obvious, and Wesley's punishment to be more severe. I found that unacceptable. Wesley is Wesley. He is one of our heroes and characters, and he's capable of lapses in judgment, capable of making decisions on an emotional basis as opposed to thinking them out, but not capable of some of the more severe things that were suggested, and not capable of overt cover-up lying to Starfleet Academy officials. So we tempered it down and blah, 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 blah. This is one of the only times I'm going to say this, but I think that's a straight-up lie. A lot of our behind-the-scenes information on Star Trek TNG, and DS9 for that matter, comes from interviews comes from things people themselves say. And far be it for me to, con to, to try and say that a television producer is lying. But nothing I have seen indicates that that is the truth. As I already told you, we know the general structure of the original episode, and in fact, Wesley was far less complicit in that, not more. Now, it's entirely possible, if we're to be fair, that maybe before they'd actually sat down and started writing the script, Wesley was going to be involved in something very horrible. Lord knows Ronald D. Moore tends to lead himself in that direction. Battlestar Galactic, cough, cough. But I still don't quite buy that. And it's a shame because I was all ready to champion Rick Berman here. Because I actually agree with him. Oh, sure, show the characters as being flawed. Show the characters as making mistakes and doing wrong. But there's a line, in my opinion. And I know a lot of people disagree on this. And that's fine. Because some people think that we shouldn't have dark Star Trek at all. Um... I am not one of those people. Some people think that we should have, like, there's no limits on how dark Star Trek could be. And I am not one of those people either. You know, I've heard, you know, there's the Tarantino Star Trek thing that's been cycling the, the realms, and people have been, I, I've seen so many discussions about that topic. In my opinion, that's going too far. In my opinion, that is too much for Star Trek. And apparently Rick Berman either agreed the same or was saying that he agreed the same in order to try and sell himself a little bit better. I'm not sure which, like I said, but I wanted to comment on that. Now we need to talk about Tom Paris. Anybody who's watched my Voyager stuff, which someday I'd like to redo because they're old and terrible, but anybody who's watched my Voyager stuff knows that I myself have reported more than once on the idea that the reason that Tom Paris was named Tom Paris rather than Locarno was because of the fact of rights issues, royalty issues. And I had no problem mentioning that and stating that and giving it as fact, especially since that wasn't just a presumption. That was not only the way that that works, but also it was something that several people had said in multiple interviews. Here's the thing. I have since become aware that there is an additional niggle in the rules. That whole royalties check thing, if you are a staff writer at the time of writing something, according to Guild rules, you don't get royalties for things you create there because, and because of the fact that you're on staff, you're not making stuff independently, if that makes any sense. You're, you don't have rights to what you're crafting. The show has rights to what you're crafting. 
And I didn't know about this at the time. I actually found out about this a little while ago, like, I don't know, two years ago at this point, something like that. And I was like, huh. And so I decided to look into it. And sure enough, at the time, Shankar and Moore, who were both on-staff writers, and I had to go a little digging for that. In fact, it was in the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff on the Blu-ray, specifically, where they start mentioning this kind of thing. Which means there were no rights issues. No, no royalties issues. So why'd they change it from Locarno to Paris? So I decided to go digging onto this specific issue. Several people in several interviews still insist the main reason was because of the royalties issue. But one of the other things that was mentioned, uh, O'Neill himself mentioned... Now, this isn't... He doesn't know. This is just his opinion. O'Neill himself uh, actually mentioned... Am I saying the name right? I should double-check that. Yeah, that's right. Robert Duncan McNeil. I'm, I'm right. Oh, I'm saying O'Neill, not McNeil. God, how many times have I been saying O'Neill instead of McNeil? I'm sorry, guys. <sighs> McNeil... <laughs> McNeil has given his own opinion on the fact that he believes that Locarno was someone who seemed good but isn't, whereas, by contrast, Tom Paris is someone who seems bad but isn't. And thus that inversement is what really defines the difference between the characters. Shrug? That's up to you. Of course, that doesn't have anything to do with behind the scenes. Uh, Jerry Taylor stated very firmly that she thought that Locarno was irredeemable, that the reason they couldn't actually use Locarno was because of the fact that he was too horrible, and they could never accept someone that horrible on the Voyager crew. After all, it's not like they have literal terrorists as part of the crew or anything. Yeah, if it's not obvious, I don't buy this. It is also probably worth noting that Jerry Taylor herself wrote several of the original uh, cast documents and sheets before they actually got to the point of decide, designing the Voyager Bible, at which point Locarno was still named Locarno in the cast sheets. And they had already approached Robert Duncan McNeil in order to have him come back as Locarno. Now, at some point or another, they changed their mind on that. And this is the really weird part. I don't know why. Some people say it's the royalties, but as we've already proven now, that is not actually a thing. And one person says it's because he's horrible, but her own actions kind of disagree with this, as well as just basic logic. It's also worth noting, by the way, the writers, both uh, both Moore and Shankar, were both interviewed about this exact issue. And both of them said, yeah, no, we wouldn't get royalties, helping to clarify the issue. But they don't know why it happened either. All we got from them is that they don't buy Jerry Taylor's excuse. So why was it changed to Paris? I have no answer for this. I can't even speculate on this, because it's the weirdest thing. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, Lore, it's just an anti-continuity thing. I mean, you joke all the time about recurring characters. But here's the weird thing. This was during a very weird slice of Star Trek, where they were trying to be pro-continuity as far as recurring. Not for the creative reasons, but because they were trying to lump together fan bases. They wanted to make sure TNG fans were watching DS9 and Voyager, and therefore they were trying to have TNG connections into both DS9 and Voyager. They did this frequently. I mean, DS9 characters literally make guest appearances on TNG in later seasons, and vice versa. And TNG and DS9 both did several things to lead up to Voyager, to make sure that that show had a, had a standing point to jump off from. So if anything, it would have made more sense for it to be Locarno. For people to remember him from the thing. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. When I first saw Caretaker, I actually thought he was the same character. Now, 
to put this simply, I was misremembering the name. Here's Tom Paris. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's the, that's the kid from First Duty. And I just went forward assuming it was him. It wasn't until I rewatched First Duty later that I was like, oh, he's called Locarno here. And that just led to confusion. And here I am. I don't know how many years later. That would have been late 90s, I think. So we're like 20 years later. And I'm still confused. If anybody has any other insights, feel free. But I'm mostly curious of your guys' thoughts or, or curiosities. What, what do you think about this one? Because this is just one of the weirder mysteries in Star Trek to me. And that's why I wanted to spend so much time talking about it. I hope you'll forgive my indulgence. I'll see you next time, guys.